Welcome to Gracious Words. Gracious Words is taken from the weekly women's Bible study taught by Cheryl Broderson at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. We behold your glory, God, in the face of Christ. It shows us who you are, revealing who you are. God has given us all his promises in the Bible. Today, we'll see how God is unwavering in His commitment and bringing us into His promises. By His great grace, He can even use our failures and mistakes to advance the promises in our lives. part one of Cheryl's message titled, Our God Fights for Us. God is absolutely committed to giving us His promises. He gave us a book of promises. When you read the history of the Bible and you see how many different emperors and kings and nations have sought to destroy the Bible. I mean, for a time, it was an illegal book in Russia, in China, in these different countries. And you see that God has preserved the Bible, that you might have the promises. God is committed to giving you his promises, but he is also committed to fulfilling his promises, to bringing his word to pass in your life. Not only that, he's committed to bringing you into these promises, settling you down in his promises, that you might testify to your generation, the next generation, about the veracity of God's promises. When it comes to the promises of God, we all have this tendency to think that God has maybe given up on us. Like, well, I was going to do that, but you know, they kept just lingering. There's these things in their lives, and I'm just going to hold back a little bit. My oldest daughter had at one point decided to walk away from the Lord. And I remember talking to her, trying to persuade her to come come back to the Lord. And she said to me at the time, Mom, I know God is real, but I love the world more than I love God. And I remember just being so rocked by that. I didn't even know what to say in response, but I went to prayer. And there was a time when she came back to Jesus and now she is walking with the Lord in an amazing capacity in discipling her own sons in the Lord. But at the time, oh yeah, cheer, Kristen, woo, woo. Um, and she'll kill me for that. But I remember that time that she came back to the Lord. And when she came back to the Lord, she was so broken and so fragile. And the enemy was just lying to her, telling her that the promises were no more, that she was going to have to work her way up. Much like the prodigal who came back to his father's house in Luke 15, saying, if I can just be a servant in my father's house, that's all I expect of God is just to be a servant. And she came back 
thinking that God wanted to make her a slave, only to realize that he wanted to make her a princess and the daughter of a king. But so many of us are like this. We think of God, we think we've jeopardized all the promises, and we feel like we're coming back to a master rather than to a father who loves us. And I remember as God began to pour out his blessings on Kristen, she got scared. She said, wait a second, why is he doing this? Why is he blessing me? Our family has the gift of suspicion that came from my mother and was passed down. But why is he blessing us like this? What's going on that he's blessing me? And I said, Kristen, he was collecting all those blessings for you, even when you were far away. And now that you're in the place, he can just open up his hands and pour them out on you. You see, God collects his promises. I was reading in Isaiah this morning that God waits, Isaiah 30, that he might be gracious unto us. He's waiting for us to come into the place that he can pour out his promises on us. But we tend to think that God has given up on us and said, well, um, I'll give these promises here (laughs) instead of here. We often think that God has changed his mind toward us about giving us the promises or that we're excluded because of our past failures or our unbelief when it comes to the promises or our, our little faith when it comes to God doing something. Don't you love the fact that God works in spite of us and that God's promises are not based on our faith, but on his zeal and passion to fulfill his own word? When trials come, often because of our mistakes, We try to handle them on our own. Oh, I don't deserve God's power. I don't deserve his help in this. I got myself into this. Now I need to get myself out of it. But Joshua 10 teaches us something absolutely contrary to that idea and concept. Joshua 10 proves to us God's unfaltering commitment and zeal to give us and settle us into his promises. We see his great grace to use even our failures and our mistakes to advance the promises in our lives. God actually fights for us that we might have all his promises. We often forget the warrior side of God God has waged war against our enemies. God waged war against sin that he might bring us into his promises. He waged war against death and against condemnation and against Satan, that he might give us the promises, that we may lay claim to his promises, and that we might move in and live in his promises. At one point, we were excluded from all of the promises of God. We're told this in Ephesians chapter 2. Sin excluded us. Our failures excluded us. Our choices, our wrong choices excluded us. Our wrong alliances excluded us from the promises of God. Then death ended opportunities for God's promise. And we had the sentence of death hanging over us. And the wages of our sin, the payment for our sin, 
was death. And by fear of death, Satan kept us captive in his prison. Condemnation was our just recompense for our sin and failure. We had no hope, no way to stop the voice of condemnation that was against us. We were the inheritors of our father's sin, Adam, according to Romans 5.16. And then we had Satan himself deceiving us into sin, seeking to sabotage us from the promises of God and constantly doing all he could to keep us from these same promises. But Jesus has fought against and won the battle against the enemies, all the enemies to the promises of God so that now all of the promises of God are yes and so be it in Jesus Christ. He has made every single promise of the word of God available to us, accessible to us, claimable. I made that word up, but let's use it. Assured, guaranteed, and we can live in these promises today. Now there's a misconception about God of late, he has been called the cosmic child abuser for sending his son Jesus to suffer and die for the sins of mankind. Uh, one week, as I was walking out the back door, this woman approached me and she said, I didn't want God to send his son to die for me. How dare he send his son? How dare he do that to Jesus? What she failed to understand is that Jesus is a warrior. He is the prince the son of God, the agency of God, as Jonathan fought the battles of Saul and Saul blew the trumpet. So Jesus is the warrior for God. Jesus came forward and said, God, let me win the world back to you. Let me go and fight for you. I was reading this morning in John 17 about the love of the father for the son and the love of the son for the father, that the father is always seeking to bless and glorify the son. And the son is always seeking to glorify and bless the father. And it was the father's deepest desire to save the world. And it was the son's desire to go and fight the enemy that he might ransom the world and give it as a gift back to his father. Titus fought against Jerusalem for his father Vespasian, who was the emperor of Rome. And so it was that the son, Alexander the Great, was the son of his father, whatever his name was. It's eluding me. If it was 222 in the morning, I could tell you. But he fought for his father and then took over the, the, the armies of Greece. So Jesus is the champion. In Acts 3.15, Acts 5.31, Hebrews 2.10, Hebrews 12.2, there is this Greek word and it's translated prince, captain, author. But the word is archegos. And it's a Greek word and it means champion or hero. It's the very word that was used in describing Hercules, the mythological champion of the Greek gods. So Jesus is the 
champion, the archaikos, the one that none can stand before. He's the hero. He's the captain of our salvation. He's the victor. In Joshua 5.14, remember the commander of the Lord's army stands before Joshua and says, I have come as the commander of the Lord's army. This is a title that was used of Jesus. In fact, often we hear the term, the Lord of hosts, also translated the captain of the Lord's army, used in reference to the Lord. And it's used 1,273 times in the Bible. This phrase, the Lord of hosts or the captain of heaven's armies. You see, Jesus is the captain of the Lord's armies. That's why he could say, I could call right now and 120,000 legions of angels would come and deliver me. My son Char the other day was saying, Mom, do you understand what happened the night Jesus was born? When all of heaven was filled with the angelic host? And I said, um, maybe. And he said, Mom, they were saying that's our captain. That's the captain. That's, that's the one that leads us into battle. That's the one we follow in that manger. That's our captain. And they were announcing it to shepherds. We fail to see that Jesus is a warrior that has taken on our greatest enemies. And he took them on in the fragility of his flesh and still defeated them, still absolutely conquered them and had a great victory over death by rising from the dead. He conquered principalities and powers on the cross. Jesus is the victor. He said of Satan, the prince of this world is coming, but he has nothing on me. He can't hold me. He can't thwart me. He can't stop me. He can't hinder me. He can't touch me. He has nothing on me. What does this mean to you? It means that Jesus has already fought your greatest enemies and all the promises of God are available to you. It means that God continues to fight the battle for you that you might come and realize every single promise, that it might be realized in your life, that you might live in the promises of God. It's time to realize that the Lord is more committed to getting you into the promises than you are about being in the promises of God. He has fought and he continues to fight for us. Joshua 10, we see that the kings of the south make an alliance together. It begins with Adonai Zedek, who is the king of Jerusalem. And he hears that the Gibeonites have made a treaty with Israel. He is intimidated. Why? Because Gibeon is one of the royal kingdoms, one of the strongest kingdoms. And all the men of Gibeah are warriors. This is an incredible thought. To think that this warrior kingdom, one of the strongest kingdoms in Israel says, you know what? We might be strong, but we're not strong enough to fight against God. This is the kingdom that decided to deceive and to make an alliance with Israel. 
because they feared the Lord, they realized that as strong as they were, there was no weapon against the power of God. So he hears that the Gibeonites have made a treaty with Israel. So he invites the most powerful kings of the South into a federation with him to kill the Gibeonites so that they cannot fight for Israel. This same king had heard about what Joshua and Israel had done to the fortified kingdom of Jericho and how thoroughly they had defeated Ai. So he invites the king Ho-Ham of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon. And they agree and combine all their forces together and make an encampment against Gibeon. Gibeon sees this alignment of kings and the encampment right outside their gate, and they send a message to Israel. And they remind Joshua of the commitment and covenant that he has made with them. And they say, do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered against us. Verse 6 of Joshua 10. Joshua's covenant with the Gibeonites not only included that Israel would spare them, but also that Israel would preserve them, which meant that Israel would fight to defend them. This must have been agonizing for Joshua. I mean, he knew that it was a mistake to make that covenant without consulting the Lord. He knew that he was deceived. And when he came to the city of Gibeon and realized that it was only three days journey from where Gilgal was and realized that that land could not be claimed and recognized the deception, that was bad enough. He was in league with these people forever and ever and ever because he had made a covenant. But now he realizes more than that, he's committed to using the forces of Israel. The men of Israel must all sacrifice, put their lives on the line for Gibeon. It's more than he bargained for. He thought he had made a mistake. Now he realizes, wow, this is a big mistake. This could potentially cost me everything I have. Joshua must have had some trepidations. Remember, they had first been defeated at Ai, and it had been horrific. And now he's going up because of his mistake to fight for Gibeon. I wonder if he had thoughts doubts about victory because this is a great army, greater forces and power than Israel had faced thus far. Again, and they were not fighting for themselves, but for those that they were deceived by and covenanted with. But Joshua and Israel are committed. A covenant is a covenant is a covenant. And he and all the men of war and the mighty men of valor leave immediately and they ascend all night. They have to climb. They have to go up. But on the way, God assures them of victory. Here is the promise. Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Verse 8. 
Israel seems to have the disadvantage. Joshua comes upon them suddenly, but his troops have marched all night. They're tired. It's unknown terrain. It's, it's a, they've been going uphill, not just going forward and marching, but uphill. It's an unknown enemy. They're fighting for those who deceive them into a treaty. And these are not good odds, but God fights for Israel. According to verse 10, God routes the enemy before Israel. This is the word Hamam, H-A-M-A-M, Hamam. And it means in Hebrew to discomfit, to move noisily against, to vex, to trouble, to confuse, to destroy, to move. All that in this word Hamam. And that's what God begins to do to the enemy, to the five kings, to these strong powers. God begins to hamam. Don't you love that word, just hamam? My mom took a Hebrew class. And the next thing you know, she started incorporating Hebrew in all her prayers. And then afterwards, she'd be like, what? Don't you know Hebrew? And it was so powerful when she'd say, Lord, hamam, the enemy. And we'd be like, yeah, whatever that is, do it. Sounds good. Mom's in the spirit. Just go for it. But Hamam, maybe we could just do it and just pretend that we know Hebrew. I don't know if I've told you this before, but Brian, dating Chuck Smith's daughter, thought that I probably knew Hebrew and spoke Greek in my sleep. And he said to me, do you, do you speak Hebrew? I said, He's like, that's great. What's that mean? how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. He's like, wow. And I said, yeah. <laughs> and, then I, and then I said, Havenu shalom, shalom, shalom. Havenu shalom lecham. Havenu shalom. And I just said, it's songs. I know all these Hebrew songs. I do not know Hebrew. So he wasn't as impressed as he thought. You know, Chuck and Kay were in the spirit, but they gave birth to sinners. Then we're told that God joined the battle and killed the enemy as they were on the descent. So Israel had had to make this ascension, which was not easy. Now the enemy thinks, oh, we get to go downhill. We can get away. We can run so fast. That's when the enemy's got the advantage on the descent. But God joins the battle and begins to kill them on the descent. And the verse 11, the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven. Imagine the size of these hailstones that they're taking these mighty men and these soldiers out. I wonder if it was actually the angels having a hail fight, you know, like a snowball fight. Like, oh, I beamed that one. What are you doing? I'm just curious. But none of the Israelites were hit. How good a name is that? The Israelites are among them, but they're not being hit by these hailstones. More died from the hailstones than from the sword of Israel. Then in verses 12 through 14, God holds back the day and the night. He keeps the sun in place that Israel might thoroughly defeat the enemy. Joshua knows that if night falls, the enemy will escape in the dark and they will go back to their cities. They will reconfigure, reinforce, and they will have to fight this enemy again. So he prays, sun stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. 
So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. I'm not a scientist, so I don't have their objections. But scientists are only men who test theories and hypotheses to ascertain what the, is the normal or usual course of life. You know, we have glorified science to a level that it does not deserve. Now, there are some things scientists are only discovering what God already made. And they're working with laws that God put in place, the laws of the body. God made the body. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that at one point we were excluded from the promises of God because of our sins, failures, wrong choices, and relationships. We were enemies of God and had the sentence of death hanging over us. But all that changed when Jesus came. Jesus offers us forgiveness and opens the door to all the promises of God. Jesus fought against Satan and everything that was trying to hold us back from God, and Jesus prevailed. Jesus won the battle and has made every single promise of God available and accessible to us. We hope you have been blessed by today's Bible study. For more information about the Gracious Words radio program and the teaching ministry of Cheryl Broderson, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. Coming up next time on the Gracious Words program, we'll look further at how God fights for us as we continue our Possessing the Promises series in the book of Joshua with Cheryl Broderson. We do hope you make plans to join us. Again, for more information, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. This program is sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.